0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Our sermon text for this evening's meditation is just the final two verses of our text that we read for our election this evening, from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The authority to rule will rest on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no limit to his authority and no end to the peace he brings. He will rule on David's throne and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from now on into eternity. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Lord, these are your words and therefore they are your truth. We ask that you'd increase our faith through them dear fellow redeemed. Have you ever done one of those dot-to-dot pictures before? Maybe as a little child, right? What do you start with? You start with a blank page, and it has a whole bunch of marks all over the place, and it doesn't look like anything. But as you begin to connect the dots from one to two, to two to three, three to four, four to five, five to six, and so forth, the picture begins to emerge, and you see that picture clearly. What used to only look like a whole bunch of dots on the page now is a beautiful picture. In a way, that's kind of what it's like and what we've been doing in our Advent series this year. And we are investigating the evidence, the Christmas clues that God has given to his Old Testament people, especially pointing to the Savior. And as we connect each one of those dots, we see the clear picture of the Christmas event and also tonight, especially, of the identity of the Savior. As we take up our theme again, Christmas Clues, this evening, Christmas Clues that Answer Who? We you think of that question, who, we may be, first and foremost want, foremost, want to know the name. What is the name of this child to be born? And perhaps surprisingly to us, God doesn't give us that information. He doesn't tell us the proper name of this individual, the name by which he'd be known by the entire world as he is today. He doesn't give his people that name. God certainly could have. There's a a great example in the Old Testament scripture of God actually foretelling someone's name nearly 100 years before he was born. A man by the name of Cyrus, a ruler of Persia who permitted God's people to come back his name was written in the Hebrew scriptures long before he was even born. So God could have done it. God could have included the proper name for this child who was to be born, but he didn't. And I argue with you this evening that he has given us something far greater in our lesson for tonight. As he has really given us every detail concerning the identity of this child to be born. So we take up our theme, Christmas clues that answer who? It's not hard to see the connection of our text this evening between this text and the one we had last week. Remember last week we were answering the question of why and we took up the the text from Genesis chapter 3. And at the very end of that text we heard God's promise that he gave to Adam and Eve. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. We see that God foretold there a promise of an offspring, the seed of the woman that would be born, the he who would come to crush the serpent's power, the serpent's head. And for tonight, don't we see that same thing? For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given. It mentions, again, a birth the seed of the woman who would be born, the he, the son, who was to come. So that's our very first clue this evening concerning the identity of this one who was to be born, that he is a human child, a male child, a son. But what else do we hear about him? Authority to rule would rest on his shoulders. What does that clue give us? Well, perhaps we think to ourselves, it must mean that he has... Some sort of power, some sort of authority, perhaps even a king. Remember the children of Israel, when God rescued them and led them out of Egypt, brought them to their own land, he cleared the way for them, them didn't he? As he was able to allow them victory after victory of, of getting rid of all of those enemies that were before them. And God, in fact, ruled them directly using his servants, his prophets, and also later his judges. But eventually the people said, that's not good enough. They began looking around to the other nations, and they demanded a king. We need a king just like everyone else. And God warned them what that would mean. Higher taxes, it would mean that their sons and daughters would serve in the king's army and serve in the king's palace. It was a big sacrifice. But the people were persistent, weren't they? So God gave them what they asked for, for good or for bad. And it seemed like it was going pretty well early on. With those first kings of Saul and David and Solomon, things went well. They expanded their territory. and Under Solomon, they had incredible peace, but things started to fall apart with the kings that followed them. And some followed the Lord, others did not. And God permitted enemies to attack at times because of their idolatry and because of their sin. And yet through all of this, God gave a promise to his people, a promise concerning a king. He gave it first to David in Second Samuel chapter 7, and he says this, When your days are complete and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your seed. He will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. You will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They might scratch your heads and wonder, well, isn't that referring to Solomon? Wasn't Solomon from David's own body? Didn't he even build a house, a temple to the Lord? All of those clues seem to fit, pointing to Solomon, but then there's this striking difference, as it mentions that this throne and this rule will be established forever, for eternity. And this is something that Isaiah also tells us in our lesson for today, too. As he describes this concerning the seed, concerning the child to be born, he will rule on David's throne and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from now on into eternity. How could that be? A king that would rule forever? I I mean, even a king as good as David was, he ruled for 40 years and then he died and Then his son Solomon took his place, he ruled for another 40 years, and then he died. And even the kings after them, even in David's line, eventually their rule ended when Nebuchadnezzar brought his army to destroy Jerusalem, and all of that was taken away. Yet our text tells us that he is going to rule forever. And what's more, Isaiah also adds there will be no limit to his authority, no end to the peace he brings. This is also puzzling, right? Is going to extend with no limit, perhaps around the entire globe? This king is able to bring peace that will never come to an end? How could any king possibly do that? We think of, of great emperors and great rulers of the past. We think of Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Charlemagne or Napoleon or any other number of rulers you can think of, that while they were perhaps great conquerors, that they could not maintain their land forever. And even if they tried to establish peace, as many of them did, that too eventually failed. But this one is so radically different. It seems to be a piece in the puzzle, though, that doesn't really fit, right? We understand a son to be born. We understand a great ruler in the line of David. But his rule is going to last forever. Peace with no end. His authority with no limit, what gives? Isaiah continues in our lesson for today as he continues to identify this child, giving proper titles for him. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Think of that first one there Wonderful Counselor. What is a counselor? Is that a counselor somebody that is wise, and he gives advice, doesn't he? He gives advice to other people, especially who need it. We think of especially counselors maybe for kings or counselors for presidents or other rulers to give them advice on how to act and what to do, and yet this child is called Wonderful Counselor. He doesn't need advice from anyone else because he himself is a counselor, a counselor par excellence which there is no greater a wonderful counselor. But again, this piece too, we scratch our heads and wonder, what does that reveal? What does that show to us? Then the next piece, the next clue, is a big one. As Isaiah goes on to call him Mighty God. Seems so confusing, doesn't it? I thought we were talking about a child the son of David, the line of kings, but now you're calling him God? How could this child to be born possibly also be the almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth? It's perplexing to us. But yet this detail answers so many of those other questions. It helps connect all the rest of the dots, right? It helps us see how his reign can last forever and ever how his rule can extend around the entire globe how his peace might have no end because God has all power and authority and can do anything this peace most certainly fits and helps us understand the who the identity of this child to be born and perhaps even more confusing for us is the next one everlasting father now, sometimes we, we hear this so often, referring to the Messiah, his wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? Do we glance over that difficulty? And it is a difficulty, isn't it, that this son who was to be born is called Everlasting Father. So which is he? Is he son or is he Father. After all, didn't David testify in Psalm 2 concerning the Messiah? I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, certainly the Messiah is the son begotten of the Lord. In this context, we understand this really as a title that he has given, describing not his person, but his work that he is an everlasting father carrying out the work of a father who acts tenderly and faithfully, a wise trainer, guardian, and provider for his children as we saw this king, this Messiah described in Psalm 72 for this evening. This final piece reveals so much to us that he is called the Prince of Peace. It's interesting to note the same individual whose rule is to really have no limit. He's not called a god of war or a king of war like David was, but rather a prince of peace. How could he be such a prince of peace? We think of Solomon himself was a prince that served during a time of peace, and yet That peace ended, didn't it? And yet, it says in our text, this peace will have no end to it. No limit. What is this peace precisely? Think about that word peace. In the Hebrew language, it's a very familiar word. I'm sure you know it already. It's the word shalom. The word for peace. And that word really has the connotation of completeness or wholeness. And that's very helpful when we understand the peace that this one comes to bring. Think of the greatest conflict that we have. Isn't the greatest conflict we have not between us and fellow individuals, but between us and God. It's a conflict that goes back to the Garden of Eden as we talked about last week when Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit and then what happened? They were terrified of God. They knew they were naked. They made clothes and they hid. And yet God asked the man, where are you? And Adam replied, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. You see, sin caused a separation between man and God. And Isaiah reminds us of this in his 59th chapter as he goes on to say, It is your guilt that has separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You see, the greatest need that we have is this peace, is resolution between us and our maker. And this is the kind of peace that this prince, that this Messiah, the Savior comes to bring. And how does he do it? I think of many world rulers who have established peace through strength. Peace by overcoming their neighbors or other countries or showing forth their muscle and military power, peace through force, peace through fear. But how does this one come to bring peace? Isaiah explains that for us too in his 53rd chapter as he describes this same one, the same Messiah, as the one who was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, this peace would be established through suffering. Through him taking our punishment, our guilt upon himself, peace would be won. Peace would be accomplished between us and God, and how could this individual possibly do that? The scriptures testify that the cost of a life is so great that no one can possibly pay for it. And yet the way that this one could bring about peace through his suffering, through his death, is because the life that he gives is not simply the life of a man, but it's the life of the mighty God, as Isaiah testifies. Because this one is God, he can give himself for us and for our sin to make things right and to bring peace between us and God. Napoleon the Great, when he finally was dethroned and exiled to that island of St. Helena, said these words. You speak of empires and power. Well, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we found them? Force. Christ founded his on love, and at this moment there are millions ready to die for him. I see no army, no banner, or battering ram. Yet a mysterious power is there working in the interest of Christianity, men secretly sustained here and there by common faith in the great unseen. I die before my time, and my body will be given to the earth as food for worms, such is the fate of him called Napoleon the Great. But look to Christ, honored and loved in every land. Look at his kingdom rising over all kingdoms. His life was not the life of a man, but of God. So the testimony of one of the great emperors of the world, testifying to the far greater kingdom that this son, this child, would establish that was founded not on force but on love, his own love, and giving himself for us to make us whole and bringing peace between us and God. This evening we have seen so many clues, so many clues that point to the identity of this child who was to be born. Those precious clues we see most certainly testify that he is a son in the line of David, a great king. But most importantly for us, that he is the almighty God and our savior from sin, the one that brings peace. God withheld the proper name for this individual from his Old Testament people. But this name would soon be revealed as he brought it through angels to Mary and Joseph. The name that they were to give to the child, a name that means... God saves. A reminder that that name is a testimony to what God does through this child, through this Messiah. A name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Yes, most certainly There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. As we see clearly the identity of this child, the one who comes at Christmas, for you and for me, our Savior from sin, Jesus Christ. Amen. Invite the congregation to please rise. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore.